Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 2, Circles and Labyrinths. Last episode, we looked at the beginnings of the Sumerian, Elamite, and Egyptian civilizations of the ancient Near East and North Africa. This week, I want to start by taking a big leap across the Mediterranean and Atlantic, and from the Old World to the New. Wait, did I say new? I may have jumped the gun there. For many years, it was believed that the first civilization to develop in the Americas was the Olmec of Mesoamerica, around 1200 BC putting this hemisphere on a much later track toward cultural development than the Near East and Europe. However, recent findings suggest that a much earlier South American civilization, the Norte Chico of coastal Peru, preceded the Olmec by over 2,000 years. This makes the Norte Chico far and away the oldest civilization in the Americas, as well as only one of six sites across the entire world where civilization developed independently. In the period between 3200 and 2500 BC, when the Norte Chico were constructing large-scale public buildings in at least seven settlements along the Peruvian coast, there was only one other multi-city urban complex on the entire planet, the region of Sumer in Mesopotamia. As another comparison, the most active period of Norte Chico construction, between 2600 and 2500 BC, was contemporary with the building of the Egyptian pyramids. So what do we know about these early residents of the Peruvian coast? Well, unfortunately not as much as we'd like to. We do know one thing. The Peruvian coast appears a highly improbable environment for a civilization to develop and thrive in. The region is extremely arid, being bounded by two rain shadows, one caused by the Andes to the east, the other by the Pacific trade winds to the west. The Atacama Desert, just south of Peru on the Chilean shore, is literally the driest place on earth. In some places, rain has never been recorded. However, the Peruvian coastal region is punctuated by more than 50 rivers that carry Andean snowmelt, and the development of widespread irrigation from these water sources was probably decisive in the emergence of the Norte Chico. 
All monumental architecture identified to date has been found close to irrigation channels. In addition to shifting the origins of American civilization from Mesoamerica to South America, the discovery of the Norte Chico also shifted the origins of South American civilization from the highlands and lowlands of the Andes, where the Chavin and later Inca had their major power centers, to the Peruvian coast. Norte Chico is located in north-central coastal Peru, approximately 100 miles north of Lima. It comprises four coastal valleys, with sites mainly concentrated in the three of them that share a common coastal plain. The oldest date securely associated with a Norte Chico city is 3500 BC at Huaricanga, making it the oldest city of the Americas as well as one of the earliest cities in the world. From 3200 onward, large-scale settlement and construction began to occur across the entire region. From 2500 to 2000 BC, during the period of greatest Norte Chico expansion, the population and development shifted decisively away from the coast toward larger interior sites such as Caral in the Supe Valley, though these new sites continued to remain highly dependent on fish and shellfish from the Peruvian coast. Cotton production, based in the interior, likely provided at least some of the impetus for this shift. Though not edible, cotton was the most important product of Norte Chico irrigation, mainly because it was vital to the production of fishing nets that provided the marine resources crucial to their diet, but also for its use in textile production. Control over cotton allowed the ruling elite to provide the benefit of cloth for clothing, bags, wraps, and other adornment. Along with cotton, the other main agricultural items grown by the Norte Chico were gourds, also not edible, but used for storage and as floats for fishing nets. As far as actual edible produce, the Norte Chico domesticated potatoes, cereals, and other crops in the nearby Andean highlands. As the population grew, highland farmers learned to terrace their hillsides to increase the area of arable land. The Norte Chico were also the first civilization to domesticate alpacas and llamas for their use as beasts of burden, a role they continue to serve in modern times. Norte Chico civilization was entirely lacking in ceramics, which, aside from eliminating a potential source of durable art, implies that they had to roast all their food, with no pots in which to boil it. Norte Chico art appeared to be limited to textiles, although the discovery of several dozen pelican bone flutes suggests that they may have also played music. In addition, the discovery of kipu, string-based recording devices, at the Norte Chico site of Corral suggests a writing or at least proto-writing system may have existed at Norte Chico. The exact use of kipu in this and later Andean cultures has been widely debated. Originally, they were believed to be simply a mnemonic used to record numeric information, such as a count of items bought or sold, kind of like an early string-based abacus. But evidence has emerged that the kipu may have also recorded symbols representing words in the same way that writing does. Research has mainly focused on the much larger sample of a few hundred kipu dating to much later Inca times. For the moment, the Norte Chico kipu discovery at Corral remains both singular and mysterious. Without a doubt, the strongest legacy of the Norte Chico is their monumental architecture. 
which included large terraced pyramids and sunken circular plazas. This construction, in combination with large stone warehouses found at one site, implied the presence of a ruling elite wielding considerable power, perhaps through exercising control over vital resources such as cotton. Architecture at Norte Chico sites is also notable for the absence of any type of defensive fortifications, which, along with other evidence, points to a lack of warfare in Norte Chico society. Settlement patterns also appear to be completely non-defensive in nature. Norte Chico sites are also notable for their large individual size and high collective density. Such a density of sites in such a small area, the three principal valleys contain over 30 major population centers within an area of only 700 square miles, is globally unique for an early human civilization. During the third millennium BC, Norte Chico may have been the most densely populated area of the world, excepting possibly northern China. As far as we can tell, Norte Chico rule was theocratic in nature, similar to early Sumer, with the power of leaders based on apparent access to deities and the supernatural. An image of the staff god, a leering figure with a hood and fangs, was found on a Norte Chico gourd dated to 2250 BC, making it the oldest god image found in the Americas. This figure, along with other religious symbols found at Norte Chico, would recur in later pre-Columbian Andean cultures. The act of architectural construction and maintenance may also have been of spiritual or religious significance to the Norte Chico. There is some evidence that Corral, for example, was considered a sacred city, and considerable resources were expended to periodically remodel the temples. Whatever form of government the Norte Chico used, it's pretty clear, based on the era and geographic isolation, that they came up with it entirely on their own. In fact, Norte Chico is one of only two sites in the world where the concept of government is known to have emerged independently, the other being Sumer, and with Mesoamerica being a third and much later case. In all other societies across the ancient world, the idea of forming a government, of developing a structure to manage resources and organize the population, was likely borrowed or copied to some extent from neighboring civilizations. Rule by priests, rule by big men, rule by oligarchy, or a more egalitarian approach, the correct relationship of the gods to one another and to the land and resources upon which they depended for their livelihood, all of this had to be approached by the Norte Chico, as by the Sumerians, without reference to prior or contemporary example. After thriving in virtual isolation for over a thousand years, Norte Chico civilization finally went into decline around 1800 BC, with more powerful regional centers emerging to both the south and north along the coast, as well as in the Andes to the east. Norte Chico's success at irrigation-based agriculture may have contributed to its being eclipsed, as the construction of canals moved to more fertile ground away from the former Norte Chico heartland. Following the decline of the Norte Chico, it would be a thousand years before the rise of the next great Peruvian culture, the Chavin, but that's a story for a later podcast. Now let's travel back across the Atlantic to licking on Neolithic or New Stone Age Britain. 
The sad truth is we know very, very little about the earliest inhabitants of the British Isles, in many ways even less than we do about the Norte Chico. However, one thing we do know is that they were really into massive earthworks. The construction of the earliest earthwork sites began during the early Neolithic period in Britain, between 4400 and 3300 BC, and took two main forms, either long mounds called barrows, used for communal burial, or causewayed enclosures, used to cross wetlands or bodies of water. A notable example of the latter is the Sweet Track, a wooden trackway built to cross local marshes that's been dated to 3800 BC. The culture who built the Sweet Track also left behind stone houses, leaf-shaped arrowheads, pottery, and evidence of polished axe production. Not quite enough to classify as a civilization, but now at least we're getting somewhere. The Middle Neolithic period in Britain, between 3300 and 2900 BC, saw the development of cursus monuments, large parallel lengths of banks with external ditches, close to the earlier barrows. This period also saw the growth and subsequent abandonment of causewayed enclosures and the building of impressive chamber tombs. Perhaps most significantly, this period also saw the emergence of the first stone circles. During the late Neolithic period, between 2900 and 2200 BC, the earliest stone enclosures known as henges were built, including the famous sites at Stonehenge, Avebury, and Silbury Hill. The first evidence of long-distance trade also appears during this period, and particularly between the ancient Britons and the early peoples of the Iberian Peninsula. So, let's talk Stonehenge a bit. The site is located at the center of the most dense complex of Neolithic and later Bronze Age monuments in England, including several hundred burial mounds. Built of stone, as its name suggests, Stonehenge is arranged in a solar orientation, with the northeastern entrance aligned with the midsummer sunrise and midwinter sunset, and was constructed in several phases. The surrounding circular earth bank and ditch, which constitute the earliest phase of the monument, have been dated to around 3100 BC. During the most ambitious period of construction, between 2600 and 2400 BC, 30 enormous sarsen stones were erected on the site, each one 13 feet high, 7 feet wide, and weighing around 25 tons, with a ring of 30 lintel stones resting on top. During this same period, a large wooden circle, sometimes referred to as Woodhenge, was also constructed two miles away at Durrington Walls, overlooking the River Avon, and a long avenue was built connecting the two sites. The Durrington Circle, the largest henge in Britain at over a quarter mile in diameter, was oriented toward the midwinter sunrise, opposite the solar alignment at Stonehenge while the avenue between the two sites was aligned with the midsummer sunset and led on from the timber circle down to the river. Evidence of huge fires on the banks of the Avon suggests that both circles were linked and perhaps used as a procession route on the longest and shortest days of the year. It has also been speculated that Woodhenge represented a land of the living, while Stonehenge represented a land of the dead, with the Avon serving as a journey between the two. Unfortunately, since the architects of Stonehenge left no written records, the enigmatic monuments and related archaeological finds provide us with our only knowledge of the early people of Neolithic Britain. For the moment, 
In the immortal words of Nigel Tufnell, no one knows who they were or what they were doing. Now, let's move on from the periphery of Europe into warmer Mediterranean climes, and move forward from the Neolithic into the Bronze Age. Last episode, I briefly mentioned the Sumerian inauguration of the Bronze Age around 3000 BC. Since this is the era we'll be living in for the next several podcasts, I wanted to take a few minutes to discuss the term in a little more detail. The Bronze Age is the period between roughly 3000 BC and 1100 BC in the Near East, Southern Europe, and India. It lasted somewhat longer in Northern Europe and the Far East. The term is almost synonymous with early human civilization, as it typically correlates with increasing urbanization, monument building, and the other trappings of complex societies. A given region entered the Bronze Age when it either learned to smelt its own copper and alloy it with tin to make bronze, or when it began trading for bronze produced elsewhere. Since copper and tin ores were rare, and therefore highly valuable, their acquisition often formed the basis for regional trade networks ranging across great distances. Such networks facilitated the cultural exchange between early civilizations, while also making local elites who exercise control over trade very, very rich. We discussed this in the context of the Sumerians last episode, but the scenario is generally applicable. Due to the longevity, popularity, and sheer artistry of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the most familiar Bronze Age civilizations to us today are probably the Mycenaean Greeks and the Trojans of Asia Minor. While these legendary combatants come to us from the tail end of the Bronze Age, I wanted to take the rest of this episode to discuss an early Bronze Age civilization whose culture would be a strong influence on the Mycenaean Greeks. It also just happens to be the earliest known European civilization, and one of my personal favorites, the Minoans of ancient Crete. I really, really love the Minoans, and have pretty much ever since I first saw the amazing artwork from their colony of Akrotiri on the Greek island of Thera around a dozen years ago. Lively, colorful, exuberant, nature-loving, playfully athletic, into drinking wine, jumping over bulls, and plying the open seas with their trading ships full of exotic goods, the Minoans just seemed like they would be a lot of fun to hang out with. The fact that they never practiced warfare, gave women powerful roles in their society, and, to top it off, were the first ancient civilization to be brought down by a natural disaster? That just made them all the more interesting. So now, let's get to know the Minoans a little bit. The island of Crete has been populated and repopulated by various peoples from mainland Europe and the Near East down through the millennia, But it was not until around 5000 BC that the first signs of advanced agriculture appeared, particularly in the area of the fertile Masara Plain in the island south, marking the beginning of what we call Minoan civilization. By the way, the term Minoan was coined by Arthur Evans in the 20th century after the King Minos of Greek myth. You might remember him as the guy who kept a minotaur in a labyrinth beneath his palace, at least until the Greek hero Theseus took care of business. Anyway, Evans thought the layout of Knossos was pretty maze-like, and combined with other archaeological evidence, he decided he'd found the legendary palace where the myth originated. Regardless of the strength of his arguments, the name stuck. 
Since their own written records remain undeciphered, whatever the Minoans may have called themselves is still a mystery. As usual, we need to start with agriculture. The Minoans grew wheat, barley, grapes, figs, and olives, as well as poppies for poppy seed and perhaps opium. They also developed the practice of growing more than one crop at a time, known as polyculture, resulting in a more varied and healthy diet and an associated increase in population. This method of farming also helped maintain the fertility of the soil and offered protection against low yields of any single crop. A little surprising for an island-based culture, the Minoans were not really big on seafood. Instead, it appears that cattle, sheep, pigs, and goats provided the bulk of their diet. They also domesticated bees and adopted pomegranates and quinces from the Near East. In addition to agriculture and livestock, the Minoans produced three highly valuable goods for both domestic use and for export. The first was wine, fermented from the local grapes. Wine had been produced since at least 5000 BC in the Zagros Mountains near the Elamite civilization discussed last week, and even earlier than that in Central Asia, and probably made its way to Crete by way of the Balkans. But it was in Crete that the production and consumption of wine first became closely tied with the culture and ceremony of an ancient civilization, a place it would continue to occupy in the Greek and Roman worlds for the next few thousand years. The second item was olive oil, so highly esteemed in the ancient world it was called liquid gold centuries later by Homer. High in both fat and calories, but without any adverse health effects, Olive oil could be stored easily and stay fresh for up to a year, in other words, until the next harvest. In addition to its use as food, olive oil was also used in religious rituals, medicines, and in oil lamps, soap making, and skin care application. The third item was cloth. Flocks of sheep pastured in the high mountains produced sufficient wool to supply a thriving textile industry. In addition to these three main items, Cretan dyes, pottery, and metalwork were also highly prized. Having entered the Bronze Age around 2700 BC, Minoan metalsmiths wasted no time honing their craft. Over the following centuries, several island localities developed into major centers of metalwork, producing jewelry, tableware, and other finely crafted items of bronze, gold, and silver for Minoan elites as well as for trade. With all these export items in abundance, it's really no surprise that by around 2000 BC, Minoan society had grown to be mainly mercantile in nature, focusing on the Mediterranean seafaring trade. The coastal locations of many ancient sites in Crete, combined with the large number of workshops and richness of archaeological finds, reflect an outward-looking society with its wealth built mainly on import and export. Trade-related activities also figure prominently in period wall frescoes, which depict large flotillas of trading vessels bound for distant shores. While many ancient civilizations of this era built boats to traverse rivers or hug coasts, the Minoans designed ships with deep keels and high prows to ply the open ocean. These ships, and the valuable cargo they carried, helped make the Minoans into masters of both Aegean and Eastern trade. Mediterranean objects of Minoan manufacture suggest that, at the height of their influence, 
A trade network had been established with mainland Greece, notably Mycenae, Cyprus, Syria, Anatolia, modern Turkey, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and westward as far as the coast of Spain. Minoan artwork has been found in the city of Avaris in the eastern Nile Delta, home of the Hyksos invaders who would conquer Egypt in 1720 BC. Sorry, should have said spoiler alert. In late 2009, Minoan-style frescoes and related artifacts were discovered during excavations of the Canaanite palace at Tel Kabri in modern-day Israel, leading archaeologists to conclude that Minoan culture had a strong influence on that early Canaanite city-state. In addition to their wide-ranging trade networks, the Minoans also founded colonies, including one on the nearby island of Thera, or Santorini, another on the island of Cythera near the Greek mainland, and another on the island of Rhodes near Anatolia. It almost goes without saying that all of this trade and colonization served to spread Minoan culture widely throughout the region. And, luckily for everyone they came in contact with, that culture just happened to be awesome. Minoan art, which has mostly come down to us in the more durable forms of pottery and wall frescoes, is lively, colorful, and exuberant, and seems to depict a civilization that rejoiced in the natural world without being overly preoccupied with the afterlife. One of the most famous frescoes, the bull-leaping scene from the Minoan Palace at Knossos, shows men and women together engaged in festive, acrobatic sports. Other artwork celebrates the beauty of native plants and animals. Human figures were drawn in profile but with a frontal eye, with dark skin used to represent males while white skin was used for females, whose lives were more typically spent indoors. In these two aspects, Minoan art clearly reflects Egyptian influence. However, in all other respects, the depictions are wholly different and original. This suggests that the Minoans were familiar with Egyptian art, but chose to borrow from it only those aspects they liked. The Minoans used a written language called Linear A, which has never been deciphered. It appeared to have been used primarily for administrative purposes, and was written on clay tablets and stored in archives. It is possible that the Minoans developed Linear A independently, making them another of the very few places in the world where written language originated. There is also some possibility that Minoan knowledge of Egyptian hieroglyphics may have contributed to the script's development. For the moment, the jury is still out. In terms of religion, the Minoans were polytheistic and worshipped mainly female deities, including a mother goddess of fertility and a mistress of the animals, with priestesses officiating at their religious ceremonies. Minoan sacred symbols included the bull, the serpent, and the labrys, or double-headed axe, which originated in Crete and was commonly associated with the sacrifice of bulls. As a side note, the term labyrinth has its roots in the word labrys, and the palace at Knossos may have also been known as the House of the Double Axe, another link between Cretan culture and the legend of King Minos. In terms of Minoan society, archaeological evidence points to relative equality between the sexes, with females exercising control over the religious sphere as well as over family inheritance, while males dominated the local oligarchies that governed early Minoan society. Despite the presence of a wealthy aristocracy, Minoan society was not highly stratified, 
The presence of multi-room structures, even in poorer areas of town, implies relative social equality and an equitable distribution of wealth. Minoan infrastructure was also fairly advanced. Cities were connected to one another with stone-paved roads formed from blocks cut with bronze saws. Streets were drained, and water and sewer facilities were available using clay pipes. In addition, the palace at Knossos has the earliest example of a flush toilet system ever discovered in Europe. The 20th century BC saw a decline in the power of local oligarchies and the emergence of the first Minoan kings. This development led in turn to the construction of the first major Minoan palaces at Knossos, Malia, and Phaistos. Mainly for this reason, the period between 1900 and 1700 BC is known as the Proto-Palatial or Old Palace period. Common palatial features included columns, staircases, basins, and an orientation based on the local topography. The palaces served a variety of functions, as centers of government, administrative offices, shrines, workshops, and storehouses containing huge pottery jars full of surplus grain, olive oil, wine, and other goods. The large open central courtyards were probably the scene of religious rituals and communal feasting. Surplus goods were likely controlled and redistributed by Minoan kings, which is why proto-palatial Crete is often referred to as having a palace economy. Ceremonies featuring spectacles such as bull leaping would bring people in from the countryside, and Minoan rulers would distribute goods to them in exchange for their continued agricultural labor, mainly in growing the Mediterranean triad of wine, olives, and grain, both for domestic consumption and for export. Whatever the details, the system appeared to work well and allowed Minoan culture to thrive. Similar to the Norte Chico, the lack of walls and fortifications at Minoan sites suggests an absence of armed conflict in Crete under Minoan rule. This evidence is not necessarily conclusive in either case. Among ancient civilizations, Shang Dynasty China and the Maya both had unfortified centers even while engaging in frontier struggles. However, the actual evidence for Minoan warfare is very, very thin. Minoan artwork is entirely devoid of combat scenes, and whenever weapons are shown, it is clearly in a ceremonial context. Furthermore, no evidence exists of a Minoan army or of Minoan domination of peoples outside Crete, in contrast to contemporary civilizations in the Near East and North Africa where such aggression is well documented. So, for the moment, let's leave the Minoans, in peace, to enjoy the Greek island life for a bit longer. As you may have picked up, in our discussion of the Minoans this episode and the Sumerians last episode, what we're witnessing is the inception of two very divergent cultural traditions and worldviews. Minoan culture will come to strongly influence the Mycenaean Greeks, and the myths and tales of both legendary ancestors will serve to inspire the Dorians and Ionians of classical Greece. On the opposing side, the long succession of Near Eastern cultures following the Sumerian and later Akkadian example will find ultimate expression in the Achaemenid Persian Empire. It's perhaps inevitable that these two civilizations would finally face off against one another in a conflict that would define the end of the ancient world and give birth to the classical age. 
With our discussion of the Norte Chico this episode, we've completed the roster of the first human civilizations that emerged across the globe in the 4th and 3rd millennium BC. With the Minoans, we've also moved forward into the Bronze Age and witnessed the growing interaction among the early civilizations of the Mediterranean in the late 3rd millennia. Next episode, we'll return to the Near East in the same time period and witness the forging of the world's first empire under a legendary conqueror whose deeds and aspirations would inspire the rulers of the region for the next 2,000 years. Meet Sargon the Great next time on The Ancient World.